You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, Meryl Streep stars in Death Becomes the Iron Lady. week, Adam Thomas and Tom Smiriani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. When we'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and don't I just look beautiful? And I am Adam Thomas, and I am British. I had no idea, Adam, this whole time you were British. That's amazing. Yes, this entire time. What With that authentic accent you've been hiding. Yes. Yes, we should not deal with terrorists. In any occasion, they are a gang of ruffians. Someone get him that Best Supporting Actress nomination right away. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> uh, but welcome to the Devil Edge Devil Bill. Uh, we are here, as we are every week, to discuss a topic in two movies, uh, one good, one bad, uh, that we picked at the end of our last episode here randomly. And our topic for the evening is is Miss Meryl Streep, uh, who we've kind of talked about doing on the show before many times, and I decided to put it here because I thought initially there was just one Meryl Streep movie coming out this week with The Prom, which is a Netflix adaptation of a big Broadway musical, but then I found out there's a second one coming out on HBO Max called uh, Let Them All Talk. So Meryl is uh, quite prolific, even in the middle of our current situation. Meryl Streep is still uh, doing her work. Meryl Streep has been prolific my entire life, basically. I mean, she's Meryl Streep. When you think of American actresses, Meryl Streep's one of the first one, if not the first one, that pops in everybody's mind. That's true, especially when it comes to sort of being very acclaimed and celebrated. And what do you think is, like, the cornerstone of that? And why do you think Meryl Streep is so celebrated, especially as, like, an American actress? Uh, You know, she's able to show quite a bit of diversity, I'd argue. And especially, you know, you can see that in our two films tonight. She goes for it, man. She's really dedicated to what she does. She arguably never really turns in a sort of ho-hum performance. I mean, I'm sure she has, but, you know, she's regarded as one of the best of the craft, and there's a reason why. No, it's very true. I think it's because, like, when you kind of think of, like, even some of the other, like, very nominated actresses, like a Catherine Hepburn or a Glenn Close, other people nominated several times, uh, they kind of do have a sort of a niche that they at least are, like, remembered for. There's sort of a typecasting to some degree. Like, with a Glenn Close, it's more about, like, fatal attraction and some of those, sure. like, more steely, like, that dangerous liaisons, that kind of thing. She kind of had a bit of that corner market, as opposed to Meryl, like, did a pretty great job of really diversifying her career, especially over the course of, like, she had one whole decade in the 80s where she was very sort of, like, serious actress, kind of experimented with comedies in the early 90s, then went back to being more dramatic, and then had a real comeback as of recent with, like, a lot of interesting comedic roles that made her especially a big box office star. She's still considered by... Anybody I've read interviews with, articles with, she's always mentioned as one of the greatest living actors today, still. Well, I mean, I mean to prove what you're talking about, though, Adam, um, Meryl Streep is the most nominated actor or actress, regardless of gender, in history, with in terms of the Academy Awards, with 21 nominations. That's fucking insane. 
I know, right? It's, and she's won three Oscars of those 21, which puts her in a very limited club with only Daniel Day-Lewis, Ingrid Bergman, Jack Nicholson, Walter Brennan, and uh, Catherine Hepburn, who's won four and is the only person to do that. But all the other ones have only won three. So that's a pretty good club to be a part of. Oh, yeah, and I guarantee you Streep will get the fourth. Yes, before she dies, she will get that fourth. I, I guarantee that as well. And in fact, Adam, I have a bit of a surprise for you. Uh, we don't usually do this on the show, but I have a bit of a game I've constructed. for Before we even get into the two movies we're going to be talking about, there are ten different roles here that Meryl Streep has had. And I want you to guess whether or not she was nominated for any of these parts. Oh, what the fuck? All right. Oh, man. Just very okay. quickly. Uh, Meryl plays a woman trying to gain custody of her son in divorce court in Kramer vs. Kramer. Yes, nominated. Yes, and won. That was her first Oscar she won. Yes. That was a bit of an easy one to start off with. Sure, great. Second one, <laughs> uh, Meryl plays a writer in a contentious relationship with her husband, who's a reporter played by Jack Nicholson, in Heartburn. Not nominated. That's true. She was not nominated for that. So far, so good. Meryl plays a music teacher trying to teach children about life through music in Music of the Heart. Oh, I want to say nominated. That is correct. She was nominated. Yep, Wes Craven film nominated for a fucking Oscar. That's, that's true. That. Uh, Meryl plays the wife of a reverend tasked to take care of three women in the Old West after their caregiver commits suicide in The Homesman. Mm, nominated? That is incorrect. She was not nominated for that part. All right. Now, if you're going every other, then I'm just going to win. <laughs> well, we can see if that's the case. Uh, Meryl plays political activist Emeline Pankhurst, uh, who organized the suffragette movement that fought to give women the right to vote in suffragette. Uh, I don't believe nominated. That is correct. She was not nominated for that part. All right. All right. Meryl plays a witch who has to let go of her daughter, Rapunzel, in this fantasy musical, Into the Woods. Oh my god, which... Ooh. No, not nominated. That is incorrect. She was nominated somehow for that. Oh god, I know, wait. <laughs> Meryl plays okay. a journalist tasked with announcing a Taliban attack in Lions for Lambs. Nominated. She was not nominated for that one. Stop dropping the ball on this now. Oh, you're Started doing okay. Strong, it's but... like, yeah, halfway through. Well, hold on, you still got a few more. Meryl plays a married woman who befriends and grows a romantic feelings for her married friend, played by Robert De Niro, in Falling in Love. Not nominated. That is correct. She was not nominated for that one. I've never even heard of that. <laughs> yeah, most people haven't. <laughs> with an obscure one there. Meryl plays an actress who has a love-hate relationship with her showbiz mother, played by Shirley MacLaine, in Postcards from the Edge. Nominated. That is correct. She was nominated for that. And finally... Meryl plays a woman who's terrible at singing, yet dreams of opening an opera house that her rich husband pays for in Florence Foster Jenkins. Nominated. That is correct. She was nominated. Okay, that wasn't bad. And what, I did get like half? No, I think you got a bit more than half because you only missed, uh, let me see. Yeah, you, you only missed about three of those. You're all good. Hey, look. You had three out of ten? That, you I'm passed. I'm a fanatic <laughs> for Streep. Right, but just to show you. How weird that nomination list where, like, an Into the Woods gets her nomination. <laughs> Into the Woods? I know. Good Even as a musical Lord. person, I would not have nominated that performance at all. Ugh, okay. <laughs> Which you think also illustrates just, like, that was a factor in terms of, like, I guess kind of my, um, sort of, especially more recent knowledge of Meryl Streep was there was a certain point where she got nominated so many times where it's just like, oh my god, we get it. it only, yeah, it this was many like, times. We the, yeah, we gotta fill out the category. Right. So, so we got Meryl in anything this year? Right, and particularly, we'll get to a movie where I think that's the case of why she maybe won her third Oscar. 
as we get oh, into this, uh-huh. because um, our two movies we're doing, um, which were picked randomly, um, in one case by our Patreons over at patreon.com slash gedvpod, where they picked your good choice, Adam, which ended up being Death Becomes Her. And then uh, randomly at the end of our last episode, we ended up getting The Iron Lady, which was my pick for a bad pick. Yes. Which we'll get into in a bit. For, but first, we're going to go ahead and start with the good feature, Death Becomes Her. A touch of magic. Drink that potion, and you'll never grow even one day older. Bottoms up. Ernest, I'm in the morgue. They think I'm dead. You are, but you're not. It's a lie. Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis, and Gordy Hawn. Death Becomes Her. So, Death Becomes Her um, came out in 1992, July 31st, 1992, from director Robert Zemeckis, who we haven't really talked about on the show, which is interesting. Um, especially because if we're going to like break in Zemeckis, this is a weird movie, because this feels so atypical <laughs> of his career in terms uh-huh. of like the subject matter, really. It feels in keeping with him in terms of this was a big revolutionizer in special effects, along with having a pretty stacked cast. Um, and this was sort of an experiment for Meryl in terms of this was sort of this period where she was kind of trying to break out of doing the serious dramatic roles after winning her first two Oscars and kind of doing a lot of sort of like really heavy dramatic movies. This was not too long after like a She-Devil or Postcards from the Edge, which are more comedically tinged. And uh, this one is, I think, her most balls out comedic performance of this time. And uh, this is probably my first introduction to Streep, actually, because my dad loves this movie. I think mainly because, one, it has, like, the sort of horror comedy edge, which introduced me to a lot of those movies as a kid, and also the special effects were so, sort of, like, uh, masterful at the time. It was just like, oh my god, the effects are so great, it's really funny, it's great. And uh, I uh, revisited this earlier this year for around the Halloween season, because I've been going through Robert Zemeckis' movies as of recent, uh, and I still think this movie holds up pretty well for myself. But Adam, you picked this, uh, so what are your thoughts on Death Becomes Her? Okay, now I remember this movie when it came out in a way. Like I remember the uh, the classic poster art with her Meryl Streep's head turned and Goldie Hawn's stomach having the hole in it, and Bruce Willis is holding a sort of candlestick through it and all that. And I remember even then that it was incredibly divisive. Like people either really liked this movie or fucking hated it. But I saw it probably not too long after it came out. Like I probably watched it with either my dad or my grandmother. I can't remember. And uh, I remember thinking it was pretty good, not crazy about it, but it's also really young. And that's probably the last time I had seen it until rewatching it for this show. Best word I can use to describe this movie is fucking wackadoo. It is wacky, goofy fucking movie, man. But I love every minute of it. I I think it's so funny and just crazy and out there. And like, how does this movie exist? And it, it's so silly, but it's there. It's just anchored by pretty much great performances all around. I, I, I especially Meryl Streep. I mean, she's phenomenal in this movie. But so is Goldie Hawn. So is Bruce Willis, who is going very slapsticky in a lot of parts. 
you know, of course, Isabella Rossellini and all that. I, I, yeah, no, this movie's fucking just super fun. It's a fun, fun movie. Thinking back on it, especially when I rewatched it earlier this year around the Halloween season, I really came to the conclusion that, like, Zemeckis was a big person at the time, obviously, because this is very weird. This is him coming off of the miracle run of doing the three Back to the Future movies and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and then right before he became, like, an Oscar-worthy sort of director for Forrest Gump. This is like the movie in between that, which is so weird once again. <laughs> this yeah. is like in between those very interesting parts of his career. But yes, around the same time, Zemeckis was also like a big producer on Tales from the Crypt, which if you've heard the trailer that I put in between, like right before we started discussing this, they play the Tales from the Crypt theme pretty uh, heavily throughout that. And honestly, this one feels far more like a Tales from the Crypt movie compared to those that came out around this 90s era. Honestly, like we talked about Demon Knight. We love Demon Knight. Mm -hmm. It does not feel oh, yeah. as much like a Tales from the Crypt movie as this does in terms of the tone. And even the story has a lot more of like a sort of be careful what you wish for kind of like evil people getting their comeuppance kind of thing to it. No, I absolutely agree. Yeah, this is this feels like an exact drawn out Tales from the Crypt episode. Like we said, I, I really do love Demon Knight, but this one feels absolutely in line with something you'd see on Tales from the Crypt. It's got the sense of whimsy, the comedy. Just the passion, the weird outside force that is Isabella Rossellini and whatever the hell that is. It, it, you know, they all end up at the end and they're in tuxes and suits and ball gowns and everything. Yeah, it's, yeah, 100% of Tales from the Crypt episode. Yeah, and I think a big part of that really has to do with sort of like the weird macabre sensibilities. Because you can tell Zemeckis was interested in this, not just because of like the special effects stuff, but also just, hey, I want to really see how far we can make these characters like into at least being unlikable, but interesting in their kind of unlikability with like Streep and Goldie Hawn in particular, which I think on in worser hands could make them sort of more shrewish in a way that I think would have been far less entertaining to watch, but you get at least, like, some sympathy for, like, there are these women who are trying to, like, keep up with, like, whatever, like, appearance that they have to keep up in society, and that ends up kind of, like, warping their brains into thinking, oh, we should be become, like, the perfect people with this, like, potion they end up getting. And I just love, especially how, like, Streep kind of inhabits that. And she really just embraces kind of being nasty, but in a way that's really fun. In a way, they also see why this was a big influence on, like, uh, a lot of drag queen media, particularly if you watch any RuPaul's Drag Race. They love this movie. They love everything alive. And you can really see with Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep, they have, like, sort of, like, a drag queen persona. They could see somebody, like, really embracing, because very over-the-top... We also have sort of like a hum weird kind of like fun cartoonishness that makes them kind of likable despite their actions. And especially after the switch, after, you know, the the sort of deaths and what they become. And they're really over the top with the eyes and the makeup and, you know, the spray paint and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. I, I The thing about this movie is it, it's it's super fun. It's super macabre. It's super dark. But it's so, like I said, it's so wacky. Like, I can't believe this movie exists, and I cannot believe that the cast that's in it is part of it. And also that it has this big an effects budget. <laughs> a, a huge effects budget. And, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of the effects do not hold up. I would say the, the one that really doesn't hold up is Meryl, like, when she walks out and she has, like, her backwards head. That's the big one that doesn't hold up for me. All the other ones after that, I think, work up pretty well. I'd argue anything with her neck. When it, mm -hmm. when she her back of her head's touching her back, or when it sinks down into her shoulders or anything, it do, it just doesn't look good. But the hole in Goldie Hawn's stomach, perfect, looks yes. great. Their peeling skin, the 
the contact work, everything like that. Really well done. Really, really well done. Or I argue, especially the sort of ending bit of this movie um, with them <laughs> kind of falling apart. I just, and I think it's also because this is a weird combination because this is 1992. They kind of had to have a combination of the CG effects, but also sort of like practical animatronics at points and also even the makeup stuff, I think is so really well blended together where I don't even think like the stuff where like say um Goldie Hawn like smashes her head in like a whack-a-mole thing like I agree it doesn't maybe look realistic but at the same time I think it's just a funny sight gag that I don't think could be really accomplished any other time obviously you're looking at early 90s CGI in a lot of it mm-hmm. but it is still really fun it's got that sense of whimsy to it like my you know I, I said the shit with Meryl Streep's head is probably the least of it but when her head is driven down her shoulders like the whack-a-mole I'd argue that's also the funniest bit that they do with her where she's got to keep pulling her head up because it keeps sinking down right right super funny um and you know Goldie Hawn you know one thing that I always notice in movies when they put somebody in a fat suit it always looks really bad uh not that bad in this no, I would agree, yeah. It's comical for a reason. Like, it's supposed to look silly, but it works. Not to be that guy, but it's the best both of them have ever looked in a movie. You get why he would be in love with either of them. Which I think also makes the comedy work a lot more in that it's just like, oh my god, he obviously would be attracted to these two. But why the fuck are they so interested in Bruce Willis, who is so goddamn funny in this movie? I would argue this is his best comedic turn, as an actor in particular. A thousand percent. When the dogs are chasing him and they get a hold of his coat, the scream that comes out of him is one of the funniest fucking things I've ever heard in my life. Well, it's so interesting, too, because this is coming right off of, like, he had done, like, the first two diehards and he was, like, becoming, like, a full-on action star at this point. He's coming back to his comedic roots from, like, Moonlighting and other stuff here. Yeah. And I just love the fact that he fully embraces being, especially, like, such a meek shitty dude where the whole time like he's constantly like he's an alcoholic and he's so bitter about his life and just him and Meryl Streep like their bitter interaction after like falling in love initially in the prologue and then coming together here like Meryl's bit about like could you stop breathing because he has like the weird whistle in his nose (laughs) (laughs) just how much they hate each other it's so funny what do you think they'll do to a bald alcoholic republican in prison (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or or her whole like back and forth with like flaccid is so funny yeah oh it's so good <laughs> she's going for gusto in this movie man and yeah. i'll tell you she fucking owns every bit of it she's so good that's you know that's the thing that i was trying to allude to earlier when we we're talking about meryl streep meryl streep does have the ability to sort of disappear in every role she doesn't have conventional looks there's something about meryl streep meryl streep definitely has a look that sets her apart from every other person but She's able to blend into these characters seamlessly to where you forget it's her. This might be my favorite Isabella Rossellini ever. Right, yes. Yeah, so sort of like the, the, the person who gives um, Meryl the, the potion and all this stuff. I, I love their interaction when Meryl drinks the potion. She's like, now a warning. Now a warning? <laughs> yeah, now a warning? <laughs> Normally, I don't like the uh, silly celebrity cameos for just for chuckles like they do in a lot of slapstick movies and stuff, but it's done really well in here. They don't just flat out say, oh, that's Elvis. Oh, that's Jim Morrison. Oh, that's James Dean. Oh, that's Marilyn Monroe. They leave it up to the viewer. If you know who that person is, you'll recognize them. If not, it doesn't change the story at all. 
I mean, they make at least, like, a bigger deal about Elvis, because it's like, oh, I won't point any fingers to anybody who's out in public all the time, even though he should be dead. And they just really spotlight a, the Elvis. That's with Elvis in that suit. So, of course, everybody knows who that is. Well, especially because the 90s were full of these kind of jokes about just, yeah. like, Elvis not being dead and all this other bullshit. But, like, when Bruce Willis is in the pool and also, hey, are you going to be done soon? It's Jim Morrison. <laughs> right, yes. Or even, yeah. um, this is more the person who played the you notice? Dean, real quick. Well, right, there was that, but did you, just more the person playing this part, did you notice the guy who Meryl sits next to when she first gets the potion, the big buff guy? No. It's actually Fabio. Holy shit, dude. <laughs> what? I knew he was in this movie, and I'm looking for him, and I'm like, nah, I don't see him. No shit, that was him, with his, foot, with his feet put up and shit. She's like, excuse me. Yes, yeah, and, and his bill recently is like, make room for my guest, please. That guy. No kidding. Well, he's a turd. <laughs> <laughs> True. The best thing he ever did was have that seagull run to his face on the road. <laughs> I was just going to say, the best thing he ever did was seagull run to his face like six bags. <laughs> but to go back to the Meryl thing you were talking about earlier, I really agree that I think this is her especially kind of embodying sort of the um, spoiled actress stereotype, which I think she was kind of getting weirdly the same thing that would later happen to Anne Hathaway later, where people kind of had this public reception of just like, oh, you're, this is all fake. You're like love of the craft or whatever. We're getting sick of it. And I think this is her kind of commenting on that at this time. That was kind of like the station people were getting. And even people were saying at the time, like when she was doing these other comedies, like, oh, Meryl can't do comedy. It's the one thing she can't do. And this movie completely breaks that perception because she just fully embraces being like this like very ego-driven, maniacal person right from the beginning where she does her terrible musical number, which I love how awkwardly bad that musical number is at the beginning. And then leading up to Goldie Hawn and Bruce Willis going backstage to see her. And right before she even lets them in, she's like practicing her reactions to seeing Goldie Hawn. Like she's so imbued with so much like desire to fuck over Goldie Hawn this whole time that it really plays throughout the whole movie just how much they like bicker at each other. It's it, it works in a way where it feels like these are like characters who would actually do this as opposed to kind of like stereotypes. They feel like real people going back and forth at each other in over the top comedic fashions. Yeah, I agree. And like a heightened sense of reality. But yeah, you, you get the idea of why these two hate each other. Like it, it totally makes sense. And yeah, that opening musical number. Oh my god, <laughs> the fucking ego on display. It's so bad. And of course, also Bruce Willis's reaction is like she's sensational. <laughs> I know he stands up. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> no, honey, she could never take me away from you. Are you kidding me? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> the thing, there's like this weird live-action Looney Tunes kind of timing to it that's so perfect. Absolutely. It's basically a slapstick movie without... Uh, acknowledging that it's a slapstick movie. Well, right, it's a slapstick movie without sort of, like, the natural human boundaries because of the special effects work. Like, they're able to go right. to these, like, cartoonish extremes. Like, even just something as simple as Goldie Hawn sitting down and there's the hole through her and the shovel is there in the middle of the couch. One, great special effects bit. And two, it's such a yeah. funny gag. It is really good. I love when she throws it through her. She's like, yes! Oh, shit, no. <laughs> <laughs> Their whole fight is so great, like, when they're fighting each other with, like, shovels and shit. <laughs> and he just disappears. Okay, I'm gonna go upstairs and let you guys do what you're doing. <laughs> I also love the fact that it's so spare in terms of a cast, really, because, like, we mentioned Bruce Willis, Goldie Hawn, and Meryl Streep. They're the three, like, really major actors that appear. There's The only yes. other one I can think of is there's a great cameo by Sidney Pollock when they go to the hospital. Which is so good when she's trying to test out Meryl. 
<laughs> just like so this doesn't hurt <laughs> yeah he's really good and of course again uh rossellini right. who's in it you know she's kind of the main carry through plot point of the film she's the one who gives them the potions and stuff but yeah other than that it's basically a three-person piece well and i found out that was not actually the original intent there was a lot more that ended up going on the cutting room floor including a whole ending where after bruce willis ends up kind of like falling to what was supposed to be his death he ends up meeting up with tracy allman as a bartender and then she fakes his death and then they meet back up with meryl streep and goldie Hawn, whatever like several years later and the test audiences hated it and they wanted a more sort of like bitter ending which, admittingly, the ending of this movie is so goddamn good. I wouldn't change the ending. No. Um, like, maybe, the only thing I might think of is, like, it is kind of weird that he has a happy ending. Because yeah. it's like, he was he was kind of like a piece of shit this whole time. Well, he was a piece of shit, but he was also exploited from these two women for different reasons. That's true. At least he has, like, a slightly more sympathetic edge in that he doesn't take the potion. And I do love his line about just, like, like but, but what then? What if I get bored? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to live forever. <laughs> like, yeah, fuck no. I don't. This isn't a dream. It's a nightmare. <laughs> um, yeah, no. I. You know, the thing is, I hadn't thought about this movie for years until you mentioned you just rewatched it. Uh, you know, in October. I'm like, oh yeah. And I'm so glad you mentioned it because I really enjoyed revisiting this one. Yeah, because, like, it's one that I think gets lost in shuffle. I think it's because what we're talking about, like, Meryl kind of, like, right after this went back to sort of her more dramatic roots, Bruce Willis stayed fully, actually. Like, I don't think he's done a straight-up comedic performance since this. He's been in, like, comedic movies, uh, but never really as, like, full-on comedy. As this yeah, movie. I was gonna say. No, not really. I mean, he was in The Kid and in North. <laughs> well, those are, like, he's kind of playing sort of a straight man to the comedic sensibilities of the child in both cases. Even right before this, he had done, like, Hudson Hawk. Ugh. Like, look who's talking movies and shit, and he's kind of like, I don't want to go back to the comedies anymore. Which is kind of a bummer, because he's really fucking funny. <laughs> I agree. I think it's an untapped sort of well. Right. He, I, I'd argue he couldn't do it now, knowing, well, maybe, maybe that could be his sort of, like, rebirth into hollywood if he started doing more comedic stuff and also like even with zemeckis like i said after this he goes to straight up much more like dramatic sort of like oscar baby stuff like forrest gump or contact Ugh. or some of those other things this is one of the last movies where like he loves special effects so much but this is one of the last times where it works for the actual story like he does in roger rabbit yes. and some of these other things where it's like it's special effects done to enhance what's going on with the tone and the story of the movie as opposed to later on he does like the mocap movies or like welcome to Morrowind, where it's like you didn't need to be the special effects heavy at all what the fuck are you doing and i've never seen seen that movie and i have zero interest but no i agree with you it, it this is like this is such an odd movie in the fact that everybody in it and even the everybody who made it this is so totally a one-off like, nobody really went and did other things like this after this. No, like, and, and even Meryl has stated that, like, she hated working on it just because it was a big special effects movie. To where she was quoted in an interview, where it's like, oh, this is your first time working with big special effects movies. And she said, it's my first, my last, my only. I think it's a tedious process. Uh, when Whatever concentration you have on this kind of comedy is just shredded. You stand, like, in place like machinery. They need to get machinery to do these kind of movies. I love how it turned out, but it's not fun to act against a lampstand. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely get that. But, uh... She's really good at it. Yes. Like, she's really good at comedy. Uh, well, that's, again, that just goes to show how good of an actress she is. I mean, like I said, I don't think this movie did very well, uh, critically. 
I know it did well as far as it won the Oscar and things like that, didn't it? Right, for, for, spe- uh, for the, special effects over Alien yeah, 3 and Batman effects. Returns, which I get. <laughs> I get it. I remember, it, like I said, it was so divisive, this film. And uh, I think it's super fun. I think this is one that deserves sort of a uh, a revisit. I don't know if it was before its time or not, but it's super, super fun. No, yeah, I, I agree that I think it feels very sort of like weird for this time in the way of like being on, you know, in a, in a movie screen. If this was a Tales from the Crypt episode, I think everybody would like really love it. Um, and it, it would fit so perfectly even to have the Crypt Keeper just like, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Like, it's oh, like bits in before and after the movie. I would argue it would fit pretty perfectly with this particular movie. And I think that's the thing is like, I going into it, you probably would have that perception of like, oh, Meryl at this particular time, kind of doing more comedy stuff. I don't know, this feels so over the top and silly. But now it feels so much more kind of like weirdly quaint to have like a massive special effects laden movie that's like a weird character comedy. <laughs> that could be done on the stage if not for the big special effects stuff because it's like a limited cast and everything. It feels so weird in a way that I agree. I think it makes it so interesting and distinct. And, a, and I hope more people would discover it, if nothing else. I think because it does feel kind of lost in the shuffle for Meryl and all this stuff. If you like A Devil Wears Prada, you see a lot of that DNA in this movie. Yes, and, absolutely. And like you said, if you like uh, Bruce Willis and like uh, Moonlighting or you know any of his earlier comedic stuff, He's really on point in this movie. Or even like a Goldie Hunt, who would I would argue this is more in her wheelhouse, given it's like more of a comedy. Yes. But even then, this is more slapsticky than even she usually did. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Um, I, I just think this is one of those movies where, you know, and I, it's a better movie than the one I'm about to compare it to. But it reminds me of like nothing but trouble. <laughs> in the way it's this weird one-off movie that's totally like, horror comedy built like just creepy and weird that nobody really gave attention to other than the Academy as far as the Oscars. But people are like, what, what, what the fuck is this? Movie? This is a better version of nothing but trouble, obviously, or out of the two of them. I, I prefer this one, but it reminds me of that where it's like just these big name celebrities and big stars are just going for broken, a weird ass thing. Those sound like pretty good final thoughts. Unless you have anything to add Adam. No. <laughs> Good. Great. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I second all of that. Like I said, this was one that I remember watching as a kid and being just like, I think sort of like weird out in a similar way. You Like, I remember so much of the imagery. I remember even being quite scared of uh, Goldie Hawn's eyes in this movie, where I think it's because of the pale makeup that she has later on, especially when she's like, quote unquote, dead. It She, she looks like haunting <laughs> in terms of like her striking her blue. Yeah especially when I was younger, um, and just being more impressed with, like, the special effects stuff. But going back to it now, it's just, like, it's so, like, very funny in a bitter way, but that really works for, like, these characters. And I think it's because Willis and Han and Streep especially put so much reality in terms of, like, the emotions they care about these characters that, like, it makes the comedy work so much more that they have, like, a grounded reality for all that to work in. And I think that's why it makes the big special effects stuff so funny, or even the small, subtle things, or even just Bruce Willis, like you mentioned, fucking screaming. He's so fucking funny. Yeah, he's <laughs> so... And every time he says, it's a miracle. <laughs> 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 or just really silly stuff, even like Meryl being in the morgue, like, Ernest, they think I'm dead. <laughs> like that. It's so good. It's so weird, like you mentioned. Yeah, there's no other big studio movie that really could have happened around this time. But also weird that, like, right after this, a lot of the same special effects people, even cinematographer Dean Cundy, revolutionized special effects further with, like, Jurassic Park. Like, right after this. 
It's such a weird movie that, like, influenced so much, and yet feels so weirdly of its time. It's so fascinating. I definitely recommend If you have not seen Death Becomes Her, definitely seek it out. It's a real hidden gem that we love spotlighting on this show. But now, uh, before we get to another movie we maybe don't want to spotlight necessarily as something to watch, uh, here is a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. More positive than a New Day pancake. More fun than a super kick party. It's the wrestling podcast from the host, who is the hammer swinging, burrito eating, well you know the rest, of Thunder Talk, Sexy Thor! It's the Ring of Thunder, found in the Thunderverse, and among the great podcasts of the ESO Network. And now for our second feature, The Iron Lady. Welcome to the Madhouse. I simply has to maximize your appeal. I've decided to run. Are you saying you want to be Prime Minister? Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. When one has been to war... With all due respect, sir, I have done battle every single day of my life. So, the Iron Lady... <laughs> Came out December 26, 2011. Um, was directed by Philadina Lloyd, who had previously directed Meryl in Mamma Mia. Perfect person oh. to, to, to switch over. Um, and uh, this was the movie that uh, I ended up picking. And I think it's mainly because this is the movie that Meryl won her third Oscar for. We should probably have a timeline. In 79, she won Best Supporting Actress for Kramer vs. Kramer, as we mentioned earlier. And then in 82, she won for Sophie's Choice. And then several Oscar nominations came and went between in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And I think especially after sort of like a, a, the, the Devil Wears Prada, people were like, hey, well, how come Meryl hasn't won an Oscar in like three decades? This is weird. And so um, they finally gave it to her in 2011 with The Iron Lady, where she plays Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister, the first female British Prime Minister, which we should, before we go any further, um, as you can tell by Adam and I's uh, illustrious voices, uh, we're not British. Speak for yourself. Oh, of course. Sir. I'm sorry. Yes, very often. Yes, quiet. Quiet. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but neither of us are British, and even then, like we weren't really as cognizant. I wasn't alive at all during Thatcher's reign, and you were around, but obviously weren't very cognizant of what was going. on. I was on like from... seven. I was yeah. seven. That's <laughs> the chair. So yeah, yeah, I didn't know. No, right. So uh, we don't have as much of like sort of that British perspective, so we're not maybe going to get as many details right about uh, her. But I want to credit uh, two friends of the show, Emily Slade and James Rodriguez, who are British, who have been on our show previously, um, who I asked about like, hey, what's sort of the perception of Thatcher? And uh, she's very much a divisive figure from what I could gather from then and my limited research I did along with this. She became the first female prime minister in Britain, which is obviously a big achievement. The one the movie, I think, focuses on the most is that particular factor. Um, but she had a lot of controversial decisions because she was sort of part of this conservative party. Then ended up doing stuff like uh, signing a big anti-LGBT law that uh, was like in office from 88 to like 2003. They finally voted it out. And she, like, literally stole free milk program from children um, and, like, closed down mines for workers and stuff like that. So a controversial figure in that regard and also that she kind of, like, she helped strengthen Britain's economy at the time. So she very much, especially, like, most of what I knew about her was first female British prime minister and she was buddies with Reagan. 
That's like most of what I knew going into mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. And then if you watch this movie within the first four to five minutes, you know she's British and a woman. Right. And that's about all you get out of it. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not a British guy. I don't follow Parliament, you know, things like that. It, it has nothing to do with not trying to be politically aware. I'm not politically aware in general. So I knew very little about Margaret Thatcher. I knew she existed. I knew exactly what you just said. She was the first female British prime minister. She was the longest serving prime minister of the time, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then you do do a little research and you read about, you know, her sort of anti LGBTQ laws, her unionization laws, her tax laws, her, you know, her war on the, you know, the Falkland Islands all, and all that. on the Falkland Islands and all these things. And yet this movie just goes, she's, she's maybe got dementia. <laughs> right. Because the movie frames most of this around her being like in her later years and having some sort of dementia and seeing her husband uh, played by Jim Broadbent, which this movie commits the big sin of, I love Jim Broadbent. But every time he popped up in this movie, just like, oh God, get the fuck away. <laughs> this whole oh, device is so dumb every time he pops mm-hmm. up. Absolutely. You don't get it either. Like, here's the thing. I get you know, again, she's suffering from dementia. She's seen her dead husband or whatever. Cool. But they spent basically five minutes trying to set up, oh, they were in love when they were young. And then that's it. They loved Shall We Dance from The King and I. It's yeah, so great, they, right? Right, exactly. Oh, great. That's it. And I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. Look, as I told you off mic, off show, this movie is completely out of my wheelhouse as far as political biopics. I don't fucking care. Well, in particular, removed like from a country that you aren't really aware of. That I'm not even, in general. Yeah, yeah. Right, that I don't belong to. Right, and that I have no really sort of basis for the truth. Uh, but watching this, this feels like the whole movie had that Barbara Walters filter on it. It looks so hazy with the cinematography. When Jim Broadbent walks into the light... Oh, get the fuck out of here with this. No, Jim. No, I told you. I'm not ready to be alone, Dennis. Oh, I'll, 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 don't worry, Margaret. I'll wash your cup for ya. <laughs> I can it myself. And then piano swells. End of movie. What the fuck? This... Oh, God. The, the biggest problem with this movie, to me, is just that it's like what you're talking about. Like, we don't learn anything here as Americans. And even then, yep. I feel like when you're watching this movie, it feels like it's trying to kind of be so milk toast and appeal to everybody. Because even, like, all these big political decisions aren't really mentioned in the movie that we're talking about. And yeah. I, I think, like, with my basic, basic-ass knowledge of what Margaret Thatcher did, it's like, okay, she sounds at least like a fascinating figure you could make an interesting movie out of. And this movie is so dull because it wants to, like, not offend anybody, which is like, well, we're not going to go too far in, like, celebrating your conservative politics, but we're not going to, like, um, say that they were bad either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, guys, guess what? We're going to explain it all in fucking flashbacks. Oh, and bad montages. So many bad montages in this movie. So bad. You said it best. It's just super bland. You know, the thing is, this would have been a perfect opportunity to take sort of a very important political figure uh, as Margaret Thatcher because of what she was is super important. I mean, the first British female prime minister and the longest serving at the time. And I mean, that's fucking huge. It's monumental. And they don't give you any of it. It's a puff piece. And it's, it's, there's no sort of insight 
into the sort of dissertation that was happening until the last, what, quarter of the movie, to where all of a sudden people are handing in their resignations and things like that. It, it's just literally, look how great Margaret Thatcher was. She did so much. She made a couple mistakes, but she was the first woman prime minister. They looked at her shitty because she wore heels in Parliament. Right. They took that sort of achievement and turned into like a girl boss TM yes. kind of narrative. Where it's like, oh, hey, like she's a lady leading. It's like, well, what were her policies? What was she doing? What what does that really mean for even Britain that she is this figure? Just like, uh, girl power. <laughs> Spice Girls. Like, it feels like it's about that shallow, even though it's talking about Margaret Thatcher. And then even when we get to stuff like, I, as far as this movie's concerned, the only reason why people started hanging their resignations was she was, like, an asshole at a meeting. Yes. <laughs> she, she called one dude out at a meeting for misspelling a word. So people were like, oh, we must quit and distance ourselves from Miss Thatcher. Like, oh, this is, what? Right, what? and all the and all the other people in Parliament, all the other, especially males, even though there were apparently female, like, serving people within Parliament that they just didn't mention at all. <laughs> They're just, like, scooted off to the side. It's all dudes and all, like, great British character actors being wasted, like Anthony Stewart Head of Buffy is the one that gets, like, talked down to, and he's just like, I feel sad. And then Richard E. Grant is also there, just like, I'm going to take over. And it's like, that's that's all you give these people? <laughs> no, you give them nothing to do. <laughs> it, it, it's... And then, and then what's her name uh, from the uh, uh, the one who just won the Oscar? Oh, Olivia Coleman, yes, who plays the yeah, daughter right. here, yes. Nah, she's wasted. Yeah, she's like, oh, I have a nose prosthetic. Mummy, daddy is dead. <laughs> and, you're like, and she's like, oh, you might as well stay here, no taxis, and that's the end of that. There are a lot of like, British people, like even um, Fleabag, uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridger is her secretary. <laughs> even Ian Glenn from Game of Thrones plays her dad. Yeah, completely wasted. And then it, it, you don't care. They show they really don't show any of the the main struggle for her to even get elected, in except for one scene where she doesn't get it, and the husband proposes to her, and then they dance, and that's it. And then she's part of Parliament. She wins. They do some shitty visual things, like there's the overhead shot of her like in the big crowd of men. So it's like, oh, get it? She's the one lady in a sea of dudes. She's got a hat on, and then it's like. Uh, yeah, I'm going to run for prime minister. You can't run for prime minister. You married a political person. You're right. What? <laughs> right, and what? then later on, she's just like, oh, I'm talking like this and screeching, quote-unquote. It's like, girl, we gotta make you over. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, she's like, I don't fucking care. <laughs> Which, honestly, that whole bit just made me realize, like, man, I, I've been giving the King's speech a bad rap, because at least, like, they realized why that was important. They told me why that was important for a king to, like, say this completely agree this this movie there's there's nothing in it that made me interested in margaret thatcher Mm -hmm. let's put it that where i i do find her a fascinating political figure but this movie added nothing to that nothing i mean i guess i technically i guess it did because i'm watching i'm going wait what really happened because it's all bullshit this movie is a puff piece in every level and from what i understand again not being British or whatever, but having limited exposure to people who live in England. They hate this movie. This is a very sort of like, this is so inaccurate, it's not even funny. Sight of the movie. I kept thinking, like, it would kind of be like if you made, like, a Nixon movie and all you did was just, like, really brush through the montages, like, oh, Watergate happened, that was a no-no, but he opened up relations with China. He's great, the ends. 
That's 100% correct. 100% correct. It's like you make a Jimmy Carter movie and you ignore the Bay of Pigs, but he still built homes for the, for the homeless. <laughs> His like, brother, they, brother Billy was so silly, he had a beard. <laughs> <laughs> he just sees Billy's ghost the whole movie. <laughs> it's accurate. That's accurate, though. That's what this movie is. It's so stupid. It's so bland and boring. Like what? It's about what an hour and almost two hours long. It's like an hour forty-five, but yeah, it feels it feels longer. <laughs> you feel every minute. It got to the point where I was watching this, and I was pausing it to go like do things, and then I'm like, I don't even need to pause this. To go do what I gotta do. I would leave the room and come back and nothing has happened. No, yeah, and I think that's why, as we, we've talked about this so much, it's important to kind of analyze how come Meryl won her third Oscar for this. This was exactly what they talk about all the time, where these actors play political figures or people with mental illness or things like that, and they're like, okay, give it to them. Well, because it's so interesting, like, I'm going to list here, these are all the movies that Meryl was nominated for in between Sophie's Choice when she won last and this. There's Silkwood, Out of Africa, Ironweed, A Cry in the Dark, Postcards from the Edge, Bridges of Madison County, One True Thing, Music of the Heart, Adaptation, Devil Wears Prada, Doubt, Julie and Julia. Any of those, I would argue, would be more deserving wins for her, especially even like a Devil's Wear, Devil Wears Prada. That's a completely different performance from like Sophie's Choice and Kramer vs. Kramer. That's a great comedic Dude. performance. Bridges of Madison County or Devil Wears Prada? Absolutely. Yeah. Over things. This, yeah. I mean, literally, I, you know, obviously I'm doing a very overblown accent, but her accent isn't even that good in this. It's very sort of stereotypical. Right, which is what her big strength sort of was as an actress for people. She's like, oh my God, she can do such great accents. Like even like Sophie's Choice, the German accent and other things. And here it's so much more of like a very SNL level per impression. She sounds like uh, Tim Allen doing Mrs. Nesbitt in fucking uh, <laughs> Toy Story. <laughs> it's so bad it's not well done and then this horrible fucking neck they give her is the old lady that doesn't move it's just a stagnant piece like it's not even well done makeup oh the the makeup like, that won the best makeup oscar as well i don't think it's that good she has no. a stagnant neck piece that doesn't move it doesn't breathe it doesn't do anything it just looks like man this woman was involved in a horrible accident I think a big reasoning for, like, even these wins is also just the fact the uh, 84th Academy Awards, when this was nominated for, is kind of an infamously bad year. This is the same year where The Artist won Best Picture. These are the nominees against Meryl here. Uh, There's Glenn Close and Albert Knobs. It was kind of like a weird early trans movie that everyone said it was terrible. It's not good. Okay, and then Viola Davis and The Help, which is complicated for a lot of reasons. And then Rooney Mara and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Okay, also and, complicated. And then Michelle Williams in My Week with Marilyn. A really weak lineup, in general. Yeah. If I had to pick one, it'd probably be Michelle Williams. She was really good. Mm-hmm. But that's not saying it's an Academy Award winning performance. This was a weak year, clearly. Yeah. And even in the Best Makeup category, um, it was nominated against Albert Knobs and also the last Harry Potter movie, uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2. Okay. Well, that probably should have won. I get, yeah, over but, the Iron Lady, honestly. Yeah, but I think that's the thing. Yeah. It's like, this was sort of like, they were, the Academy was kind of waiting for like, let's give Meryl her third Oscar. Let's wait. Let's wait. And here, no one else is looking. <laughs> let's do yeah, this one. I mean, yeah, completely, completely. Like, uh, uh, okay. We'll give it to her because nobody can uh, argue that Meryl Streep's great. <laughs> uh, let's distract. Uh, the, the artist wins all the other Oscars. <laughs> 
yeah, it feels like a lifetime achievement Oscar mm-hmm. over an actual Oscar for a great performance, which I look, she is transformative in the role. You forget you're looking at Meryl Streep. You really do. Mm-hmm. But it does feel like somebody putting on a character of a real person. Right. It's so dull and boring. It feels like no care was really given to any of it. Like, let's just, we're just going to bank on Meryl Streep playing Margaret Thatcher. And that's what we got. Now it feels sort of like the definition of an Oscar baby movie. And this feels like yeah. it would be designed to be a movie that was like attempted to be Oscar nominee and just forgotten. But because of this particular year, like Meryl, like, ended up winning just because of the lack of competition really and i think it's just it's a bummer that like she has another prestigious award for like this shitty of a fucking movie in all honesty and it feels like there's so many other ones that she could have really won for and it feels just like we're, we're kind of awarding like not not to say she didn't put any effort into this but like one of her lesser performances i would definitely argue even if she transforms quote unquote this is bottom of the barrel streep uh yeah i i, I think i have to agree like you said, it's very Oscar baity. There was no question what the type of movie they were trying to make. They they mm-hmm. knew that if they made this film a biopic about this important figure, that with with even a sort of inkling of care was put into it, that they would get nominations, and that's exactly what we got out of it. Right, as opposed to even like the last nomination Meryl had was for Julie and Julie, your alternate choice for the good pick, which I saw. I'm holding on to it. I'm holding on to it just in case. Right, I mean, that's a movie where, like, you could easily, obviously, it's Julia Child, you could easily make that, like, the SNL, literally the Dan Eckward impression, which they even, there's a bit where she watches that in Julia and Julia, that's very cute. But I like in that performance, like, she's doing the Julia Child sort of voice, but she feels so much more like a real character. I think that's the big strength of Meryl, is, like, she's able to do this voice that could come off as kind of silly, but in that particular role has, like, so much, like, humanity and earnestness. You know, to go back to what we were talking about in the very opening of the show, why Meryl Streep is Meryl Streep, I think because Meryl Streep, uh, in most roles, almost all roles she does, there's a sense of warmth and sort of uh, inviting to her character and personality, and in this movie, you don't get any of it. No, even though that's what they're kind of striving for. Even like a Devil Wears Prada, where she's playing purposely like a very persnickety character. You want to follow her. And in this one, no, you don't care. Don't wear the pearls. Where did my husband gave me this pearls when my twins were born? It's out of the question. Okay, well, there's there's the whole explanation. There you go. Done. Let's talk about my son the whole movie, but never show him. Oh, good. Great. No, yeah, you you get no sense as to why this character, like, really even mattered to some extent. It feels so much like when I people agree. sort of try and make kind of, like, movies about political figures, it's kind of a thing of, like, oh, which perspective do you really come from, and can you kind of, like, make it ultimately kind of milk toast? really? I think that's kind of also what I had an issue with, with say, like, Oliver Stone's W, which is so weird yeah. given it's Oliver Stone. Like, it feels so much more kind of, like, middle of the road and also kind of making a movie that has such a weird limited perspective on a particular character like in that case where it's like you, you did this like halfway through his presidency <laughs> spoilers it ended in a very interesting way you didn't fucking show and even in this case like reading up on just any basic things about Thatcher it's just like okay this is such an interesting controversial figure in British history that would make so much interesting drama or conflict and all of it's drained from this movie there's no real conflict except just like girls rule oh. like that's that's it <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes, girl power. Every boy and every girl 
Vote for your life. <laughs> She's, you know. She... <laughs> <laughs> the Vega bus is coming. But, um. <laughs> no, excuse me, I take milk away from children in the schools yeah. and shit. I'm blue, dabba dabba da da. But, um, it's. No, it, it's. Like you said, it, it's very just. Drab and dull and boring. And for me, it made me care even less about the actual person. I would say it almost had sort of like a, um, this is what I call the last airbender effect, where um, like a sort of adaptation or something just like depicting a particular series of events is so like poorly done and so uninteresting that I'm just like, I have to find out what the fuck this is about. Like with Last Airbender, that was the case where I hadn't seen the TV show. And I yeah. watched that movie. It's like, this is so terrible. I have to watch a TV show. And it's like, oh, it's a great TV show. Right. And even like after watching this movie, I'm just like, why the fuck was Thatcher like such a big deal? And just my limited research after this, just like, oh, this is a fascinating figure who I can see why she became kind of like a boogeyman of sorts to but, like some people but, and why she was so beloved by others. But think about that, though. It took you five seconds. It took yeah. you five <laughs> seconds on Google to get anything interesting about Margaret Thatcher. This movie had two hours to do it, and they gave you zip. Yeah. They gave you nothing. I say no to this film. The lady doth screech too much. The film doth don't do much of anything, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Bully. (laughs) I mean, do you have any final thoughts, Adam? I got got zip on this movie. I mean, honestly, I, I give zero shits about this film. On a scale of shits from 1 to 10, it's a negative 3. It's just boring. It's dull. I'm not against political biopics or biopics to begin with. It's kind of out of my wheelhouse, but there are some that I've seen that make me interested in the character. And I I can learn a lot from it because either from the film itself or it inspires me to do a little bit of own personal research. This did neither. This was super bland, super boring, went in weird directions that I didn't expect it to, like, like the whole dementia thing. Like, what are we doing with this? Like, are, are we using this as sort of a, a sympathy reason or an explanation to why she might've done some of the shit she did? Like, what are we, what are we doing? And it, it's just, it's a jumbled, boring mess. No. Yeah. I think the, that whole dementia thing is really just meant to kind of like make this more of a universal story of just like, Oh, you know, we all end up in like some kind of like dilapidated state by the end of our lives and look this poor woman who's gone to the state don't you feel sad for her and it's like i in theory i would but then you like give meryl stuff like there's that scene at the doctor's office where Uh she's talking about like oh you know people are so concerned about their feelings i'm concerned about ideas and it's like oh fuck this lady (laughs) fuck this lady (laughs) who thinks she's so superior (laughs) it's like it's it's really just like this is a weird thing of like the the few cracks we get of thatcher don't really do much of her favors, but the movie the whole time is trying to seal those cracks up, which is like, no, she's great, girl power lady, and I'm all for a story about, like, okay, a woman trying to fight against a massive, like, government that's trying to, like, block her from becoming, having any kind of sense of power, that's an interesting story, but what works about that, too, is that you actually give her, like, an actual humanity that makes her interesting, as opposed to just relying on Streep to do I guess the best she can with this limited material to like make her kind of like this human character with a lot of flaws and a lot of like controversial statements, but you don't get any reason of like why she was like so controversial, why like the Falkland Islands decision was such a big deal, except just like all oh, the Argentina invaded. Clearly, like they're just a faceless people that are invading here. We don't get any real sense of what's going on here. It just feels just like this cliff notes 
of a story that just kind of gives you like vague hints of like what she kind of did. And even then, like it feels like it's a cliff notes with like certain things widened out. Cause it's like, Oh, that's not good. We can't like show you this. And it's like, no, I want to know this fucking story. And you're just like doing nothing with it. And it's a, it's a real waste of your time. And a real importantly, just a waste of a third win for Meryl. Yes, I agree. But that's the end of our discussion for our two films this evening, though we have uh, some feedback to read and are picking for next week to do so. Stay tuned for that. First, though, uh, we have, as I mentioned, every uh, Monday over uh, at DEDBPod on Twitter and Facebook, we ask you, hey, what are your favorite or least favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing? And uh, first, speaking of Brits, uh, James Rodriguez, previous guest on the show uh, for Meryl Streep, says, Best Little Women, Doubt, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Worst, August Osage County, and the first Mamma Mia. Uh, Christian Alvarez says, Meryl Streep is a highlight of American actresses that has earned her place as a critical darling and icon despite her stumbles. My favorite Streep roles are in Kramer vs. Kramer, Death Becomes Her, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, uh, The Devil Wears Prada, Doubt, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and a personal favorite, uh, since I'm a huge Carrie Fisher fan, is Postcards from the Edge. Uh, her lesser roles, like Lions for Lambs, her cameo in uh, Stuck on You from Academy Award-winning filmmaker Peter Fairley, and her role in Into the Woods um, aren't uh, my favorites. I'm interested to see what her career goes to, though, and I hope she leaves a great career behind with better comedy roles than something like It's Complicated. Rachel Hillis is best, Mamma Mia, Devil Wears Prada, Death Becomes Her, Adaptation and Doubt. I would also give an honorable mention to Julie and Julia because even though I don't remember a whole lot else about that movie, I remember that she was great in it. Worst, Hope Springs, The Iron Lady, and It's Complicated. Uh, Elwood Tiberius at Elwood underscore Tiberius says a personal favorite role of hers would be Susan Orlean in Adaptation. I uh, didn't like her joyless insert in Mary Poppins Returns myself. And then Ryan Quarterman says, do an entire episode about Ricky and the Flash. Fuck you, Ryan. <laughs> Fuck you, Ryan. <laughs> Uh, no, I, you know, I, I do, I did forget about her and Lebanese ticket. She was really good in that movie. She's one of the highlights of that movie. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I tend to agree with everything that was said there. Uh, even the ones I haven't seen, I've heard nothing but good things. Yeah. I actually hadn't seen Kramer versus Kramer until right before doing the show. Cause it was kind of like mm-hmm. a weird, like divorce kid thing where it's like, do I want to go, do I want to watch that? And I avoided it for like so long. And then it's just like, it's on prime right now. I'm just like, why not? Let, let me go ahead and see it. And it's kind of rough, but I think what's so fascinating about that movie is it's she abandons Dustin Hoffman and the kid so early on. And we spend so much time with Dustin Hoffman trying to get used to this and their son kind of trying to adjust to things that when she comes in, in theory, she should be like the biggest villain, awful piece of shit for like, how dare you try and take him away? But she portrays such a nuanced character that it's just like, I feel way more conflicted than I would have ever expected with like her, particularly the whole scene where she gets like grilled at the uh, custody hearing is so brutal. It hurts so hard, but she does a great job of making that kind of unlikable position so inherently human. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And the thing is, I always thought the same thing about that movie because uh, I had seen it before. Uh, not very often. Uh, obviously, I'm also a child of divorce and, you know, I've gone through family problems and everything as well in my personal life. But I rewatched it eh, probably a year ago. And I thought the same thing, man. I- I'm like, 
she's just a person with all of her infallibilities and all of her sort of issues and everything, but she she handles it with great care where uh, not only, of course, the, the script writing and the directing and everything else, but in the hands of a lesser person, she would come across as just that archetypal villain. But I mean, I, I also agree with something like Adaptation I rewatched recently, and she's so phenomenal in that. She has a weird, really interesting chemistry with like Chris Cooper in that movie. That works so much better than it should on the page. And, and even, like, with the Mamma Mia thing, it's interesting. Because I've seen both those. I hate the first Mamma Mia. I agree with James about that. And it's the one that has Meryl the most in it. It's the only movie where it feels like everyone's drunk making it. That might be accurate. No, that's true. And especially it's, like, mimosa drunk. Like, everybody drank mimosas right before. But weirdly, with, like, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, which not nearly as many people saw... And it has far less Meryl. She has, like, one cameo in it. I found that so much more of, like, oh, this feels like a real musical movie. It has, like, better production numbers and better, like, twists on the ABBA songs and stuff. And it helps that they get Lily James to play, like, young Meryl. Because it's, like, a weird, like, Godfather 2 <laughs> structure. Where, like, Amanda Seyfried is the <laughs> daughter getting married. And at the same time, we see flashbacks to, like, young Meryl. As, like, she meets up with the young versions like Colin Firth and Stalin Skarsgård and Pierce Brosnan. And James is so, like, phenomenal in that movie that it's just like, oh my god, you elevate this so much more. Plus, that movie has a duet between Andy Garcia and Cher. How many other movies have that? I, I don't know that that's something we need, though, but sure. It's pretty great. They sing Fernando. It's really great. <laughs> oh, god. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but even though, you know, like, we mentioned Devil's Wears Prada a couple times. I hadn't seen that until earlier this year. And I get what everybody likes about that movie so much. She is so great, especially playing off of like an Anne Hathaway, where she's playing sort of like a almost witchy character, and you really let her guard down a bit, so it feels like, oh my god, she is a real person, but why she has to put this guard in at the same time. And plus, Stanley Tucci says, gird your loins. We always love the Tucci here. Um, but were there any other ones you wanted to spotlight for either good or bad with Meryl? Uh, you know, I the thing is, with Meryl Streep, I think we've pretty much, especially with our feedback and in our conversation before, where you played that fucking game that I was unaware of, <laughs> I think we kind of covered most of them in a way. Uh, the ones that are sort of worth mentioning. As far as like my favorites, obviously, I, I really do like Death Becomes Her. I do like, I cannot, well, I cannot believe she was nominated for Into the Woods. Like, what the fuck is that? Uh, but I like her, her and Fantastic Mr. Fox, of course. Doubt is a good movie. It's just not one that I, I care to revisit. It doesn't help also that Viola Davis has one scene in that movie, and she, like, acts circles around even Meryl. And she's so fucking good in that one scene she has. That's true. She has really but you know what, we even, like, one I think we definitely agree on, I don't think mentioned as much in the feedback, but we definitely really love um is bridges of madison county which i think has gotten lost to time a bit um is such a phenomenal turn from her and the, like the weird chemistry she has with like a clint eastwood who is not somebody i see having romantic chemistry with like most of his leading ladies in most of his movies anyone period except maybe that monkey <laughs> yeah it's true and when that monkey they were hot for each other <laughs> But uh, the Bridges of Madison County, I think they work so well off each other. It's this really interesting kind of dynamic that you wouldn't really expect. And it feels like also like it's she kind of gets the best out of Eastwood as an actor in terms of actually being emotionally vulnerable in a way that he's not really in any other roles. Yeah, I, I, I really do enjoy that movie. You know, another one, too, that's kind of uh, against. I, well, hey, you mentioned it earlier. I'm not a huge fan of She-Devil. Mm -hmm. I think it's OK. I think it's good performance by her. But yeah. But another one that also is kind of a meh 
movie, but she's really good in it, and it's a really good uh, Kevin Bacon is River Wild. Okay. Have you seen that one? I, I have not seen that one, no. It's a good, like, thriller movie. I, I, I would recommend that one, for sure. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll say I, I watched She-Devil as well fairly recently in prep for the show. I, I have very mixed feelings about that movie in general, and I think it has a lot to do with, like, Roseanne isn't my favorite <laughs> comedic actress, necessarily. No, she's awful. For a lot of reasons. But Meryl was also, like, that's kind of like a weird evolution point where you can kind of see what she would bring to Death Becomes Her, and then later, yeah. Devil Wears Prada with that role in particular. She's pretty fun um, in kind of playing this, like, spoiled, rich person who has to deal with, like, having a family come over. And that's another weird love triangle where it's, like, her, Roseanne Barr, and fucking Ed Begley Jr. Ed Begley Jr. is, like, your Lothario piece of shit. Like, okay. Yeah, he's so good at it, though. He's so He's really good. funny. No, he's really funny. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, and even, um, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily a fan of a Sophie's Choice. I've said this before that I recently watched that for, like, the AFI episode we did. And I think that's a long, drawn-out, Oscar-baiting movie. But you get why she won for something like that. For just, like, the actual choice moment alone. is like, brilliant acting. Yeah, and the idea of it, of what she's actually doing. And she carries it so well. What a horrible, horrible scene. Yes. Just and, and it's written all over her face and her performance. Like, oh my god. It's a heartbreaking scene. And an otherwise, uh, kind of bullshit movie. Because <laughs> we have to follow Peter McNichol as he gets in on this Kevin Klein Meryl Streep romance. That's what we wanted. <laughs> Big time Peter McNichol fan here. Big, Big time. time. <laughs> we avoid him for an episode topic just because he's too sacred for us. We can't do yep, that yep. for Peter McNichol. So it'll be Ghostbusters and Dracula dead and loving it. <laughs> Ghostbusters our... 2, sir. Two. Ghostbusters 2. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How dare I? To be fair, he is probably the best part of that movie. He's really funny in that movie. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's the baby you. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 that is the end of our feedback section here. We want to thank some people before we leave here and do our picking for the for next week. Uh, like you all who submitted that feedback, thank you very much. And also thanks to Chris Oliver for the intro and natural music used in our show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art that we use for our show. And thanks to our loyal patrons. We're over at patreon.com slash pod. We ask all of you, uh, you know, if you pay just $1 a month, uh, you end up getting some perks like bonus episodes every month and some polls where you get to pick stuff like the uh, good movie we did for this episode or even uh, around this week when we're releasing this, uh, you get to vote for the bad pick for our first episode of 2021, which will be all about the crazy, wild, madman of an actor, Nicolas Cage. And uh, you get to pick for my two bad picks, which will be uh, next, the 2007 film, in which he can see into the future briefly, like that's a Raven style, um, but he fights terrorists. Uh, And then Primal, which is the movie in which he he plays a big game hunter who finds a white tiger and it gets loose on a ship, along with a lot of other exotic animals, evidently. Yep, and either in both movies you have either bad hair or facial hair. Maybe a combination of both. I mean, that's a lot of his, especially straight to Redbox movies of recent. Oh, that's most of his movies in in general. True, very true. (laughs) Um, But you all get to pick which specific breed of bad we do between those two. If you're just a $1 patron over there at patreon.com slash pod. And um, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook 
at DEDVPod, as I mentioned, for when we post up the feedback feelers where you guys can contribute. You can also send feedback to us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. You can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram or even Letterboxd as at NotTheWho'sTommy uh, for all my individual musings. And I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com where I do like reviews and lists around this time. I'm uh, cooking up a few things. Like uh, recently I watched David Fincher's Mank, and there should be a review up there on the, the blog for that. And uh, some other things in the near future. Yeah. And you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore or underscore A-D-A-M. I, not a whole lot pops off on either. I'll share shit. And like Thomas said on our last episode, if you want someone to tweet at three in the morning, that'll probably be me. Uh, yeah, I don't do much online. I, I have a very, very low profile now. Well, for whatever profile you can get of Adam, you can also subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, why not take a listen to the other great shows on there, or even dig into our archives on the Podbean main feed, where we did a solid like 70 or so episodes before we joined ESO. And if nothing else, if you can't join the Patreon, if you don't have the social media stuff, if you could just rate, review, or just share the show around somewhere, get in front of people's eyeballs, that helps us get more visibility. Yeah, I mean, again, as I've said for hundreds of episodes, not that fucking hard. You know, super easy, super easy to do. And to those that do it, thank you. And to those that don't, I mean, you know, just help us out, okay? Come on. Come on. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh,. Now, Adam, it's time to do our picking for next week. And uh, this is another thing that the Patreon folks, the edgelords as we call them, over at uh, patreon.com slash GEDBpod, voted for, uh, where we, you know, it's been a stressful year 2020. We don't have to tell you guys. It's been rough. That's <laughs> year ever. <laughs> That's true. Yes, very great. Nothing yeah, bad. I can't wait for the VH1 show about this. <laughs> I love the 2020. It's not the 2020s, but specifically 2020, yep. this decade of a year. Yep. But um, we decided to do something kind of silly as uh, one of the last topics of the year. And we ended up doing uh, animal movies. And you all got to, uh, over at patreon.com slash pod. you ended up picking between monkey movies as a topic or we ended up getting dog movies. So any movie where basically a dog plays a prominent role. Uh-huh. Which I love that we went silly with it. And I love that it got such a big reaction. Yeah, this was probably our most contentious poll. <laughs> Which is crazy. <laughs> They're just like neck and neck for so long. It makes so much sense, though. <laughs> True. In retrospect, it really makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I have the two good movies for the silly topic. You have the two bad ones. So, yeah. uh, Adam, uh, I have a sign number between 1 and 10 for mine, and you the same for yours. Uh, go ahead and pick a number between 1 and 10 for me, and we'll see what gets closest. Uh, number 8. Okay, at number 10, I had a movie that has a prominent dog, uh, not the titular character, but sort of a, a companion that participates in this grand adventure. This adventure, in fact, of uh, one Tintin. It is The Adventures of Tintin from 2011. Great movie. Hell yeah. yeah. And great dog, Snowy. Yep, so great. Dogs. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was your other choice? At number three, I had one where the dog plays a more villainous role. Uh, one I remember from my childhood uh, with uh, the beast of a dog that it is. It's the Sandlot. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not a fan? <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. 
Ted 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 It's fine episode. Another one. Another one of those. Well, now for yours, Adam. I'm very curious about your bad picks. Um, uh-huh. I, I'm going to go with a, a good boy of a number, number four. All right. At number three, I have, which I think is a very, very fun movie. It stars one of my favorite bad character actors, Lance Henriksen. And it also stars Ali Sheedy. It is the film Man's Best Friend. I don't know what this is, really. <laughs> it is a about a genetically engineered dog that uh, has all sorts of different animal breeds in it. And it becomes a killer. It's oh. terrible. Okay. That, that <laughs> sounds interesting. I'll give you that. Um, oh, but what something. was your other choice, Adam? <laughs> my number 10 choice was top dog oh yes the movie where chuck norris and a cute police dog, dog fight white supremacists that was the other one <laughs> one of the weirdest movies i've ever seen <laughs> all right so no we're gonna do man's best friend in tintin another yep. weird double feature for us yeah we've been hitting the weird ones lately that's good oh, though yep we, we like it weird here and on that note, oh, good evening, everybody. <laughs> yes, I thank all of you for joining us. But we go. shall not give in to your demands. I've had to fight every day of my life for double-edged double will. I still see my dead husband. Isn't that weird? <laughs> good night, everybody. Ta-ta! has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.